So let me bring in my guest this evening, E. Michael Jones. How are you, Mike? Just great, Gemma. Good to be here. It's great to have you as always. And nobody really is on a par with you in terms of explaining how we got into this mess. We as in the West. And I watched a fantastic interview you did with a young man the other day. And, you know, you were going right back to the beginning, Michael. Now, we may be either at the very end of this civilization or we may be actually well into the dawn of a new one, which will have its roots once again in Christianity. But can you just talk us through the roots of Western civilization and how it is inextricably linked with Christianity? Yes. Um, I, I dealt with this in my book, Logos Rising. Uh, we're talking about one word here. We're talking about Logos, the word Logos, which is a word that the Greeks came up with as their description of, of the ultimate reality that we all live in. It, took, it, it, it came about gradually because uh, there was, uh, after the fall, uh, mankind just started to struggle back and try to get control of things. And we created a civilization in the Mediterranean uh, that grew up. It had writing, it had all sorts of things, and it collapsed, absolutely collapsed. No one understands really why it collapsed. It could have been invasions. It could have been natural disasters. But around the year uh, 1200 BC, everything fell apart. And this was also the year in which... Uh, Troy fell. And the, Troy, the, the, the Iliad may be a description of some type of universal collapse in the, in the Mediterranean. We don't know, but we know that everything sort of fell apart. And then gradually, uh, human, the man, mankind started to make a comeback. They lost writing. They lost just about everything. And they started to make a comeback at around 800 BC, after about 400 years. And this is when uh, the Iliad was written down in Greek. So they, they regained writing. And at this point, the people on the uh, western coast of what was Persia then, which is now Turkey, uh, places like uh, Miletus, uh, Ionia it was called, started to speculate about uh, the world that they lived in. And, and some, there, there seemed to be some type of unifying factor here. And, and they started off uh, be in a primitive way by saying it had to be associated with something material. So Thales said it was water. Everything's made out of water. Human body is largely water. So that kind of makes sense to a certain extent. And then Anaxagoras said it was air. And at this point, we're heading in a more spiritual direction because air is spirit. Pneuma, uh, breath, that type of thing. When when you breathe your last, that's the end. Uh, so maybe it's that. And then Heraclitus, who was a probably a Persian citizen, but speaking Greek in that colony there, uh, decided it was fire, which was energy, uh, and 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 energy bound up with contradiction. Uh, and he he's the first one to use the word logos here. Because and, and logos is a breakthrough because it's 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 a not a material thing, and in order to be really sophisticated in philosophy, you have to break with this picture thinking, which is basically what it was up to that point. 
So we have, you know, primitive man did cave paintings, which he's a man, he's making a representation of art. The Egyptians kind of took that and turned it into hieroglyphics, which are little pictures uh, instead of an alphabet. And now the Greeks come up with the idea of logos, and that sets off basically Western civilization because the West, Greece, is now different than Persia. Aristotle said, if you couldn't be a citizen of Athens if you had a job, if you had to work for a living, because the Athenians attended meetings all the time because they had a democracy and the people decided the course of events. And in this, they were different than Persia, uh, where the king basically decided on his own, all by himself, uh, based on dreams. So Xerxes had a dream, had the second dream. He said, this means I'm going to invade. He invaded, and it was a big mistake. So that was the difference between the West and 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 uh, the East, if we want to call Asia the East and Persia as the kingdom of the East. This, this led to Pla Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, uh, an achievement that had never happened anyplace else in the world. It just had never happened anyplace else. Uh, they they came up with ideas. They tried to take it as far as they could, and they failed because they couldn't understand the relationship between God and the universe uh, because they didn't have an idea of creation. So God was completely transcendent, and the universe was complete chaos, transitory, uh, meaningless changes, and that was it. So Aristotle said that God was the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover. That's great. That's transcendent. Plato said he was the demiurgos, which means he's a worker of the people. That means he's sort of interested in you. But if he's interested in you, he has to work in time. And if he works in time, he's not God. And that was the impasse. And that was the end of Greek philosophy. And Aristotle's pupil was Alexander the Great. And he spread Greek philosophy and the Greek language by military conquest. Now, at the same time, that's happening at the other side of the Mediterranean. We have the Hebrews, and the Hebrews have a completely different approach to reality. They have a language that is really not philosophical, a language which is very concrete. And so it says that God is a rock and uh, metaphors, basically. Uh, and that's not philosophical, but that's, what, that's the language they had. But they had the distinction of being... God's chosen people, and the man who was the mediator between God and, and the people was Moses. Moses went up to a, the uh, uh, saw a burning bush, went up to it, knelt down, and God started talking to him. And he said, "You got to go free the Hebrew people." And Moses said, "Okay, uh, it sounds like a tough job, but who should I say told me to do this?" And God said, "I am who am." I don't think Moses understood that. I don't, I'm sure the Hebrew people didn't understand that. It was too philosophical for them. I don't think anybody understood it really until Thomas Aquinas talked about being, God as self-subsistent self being. You depend on your parents for your being. Your parents depend on their parents and so on and so on, all the way back to Adam and Eve. God doesn't depend on anybody for his being. He's totally self-subsistent. That is his nature, and that's why he's God. And so suddenly you have two parallel tracks that come together when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes on earth and the Jews reject him. And as a result, they become 
Jewish revolutionaries, which they had been all the they are to this day, what they are right now. Uh, and I'm, Christianity uh, begins. Yes. Really, the, the, you know, people find this hard, maybe unpalatable, let's say. But the reality is that we would not be in this state today in the West, if, in the world, if the Jews had not believed that Jesus was the Messiah. If they had believed he was the Messiah, if they had converted to his word, we would not be where we are today because we know as hard as it is for us to, the maybe not us, but for the politically correct among us, that it is Jewish money, Zionist money that is fund has funded all of the wars in history, even the wars in our own country, including also the wars that took place in Germany and the atrocities done to Jewish people there and others, many others, including Catholics and gypsies and homosexuals. So that this, these are the facts. And we need to go right back to Jesus in the temple and his position on usury and, well, interest, basically. Can you explain all of that? Yes, you're absolutely right. We are, we, you and I, United States, Ireland, the European Union, we are in this mess largely because of the aftermath of World War II. That was in many ways the founding. Ireland had nothing to do with this. You know, you were neutral in the war, but that doesn't matter because the moment you joined the European Union, you became a vassal state to Germany, and Germany is a vassal state of the United States of America. And that means that you are operating according to German rules. And the main German rule that you're operating under is guilt for the Holocaust. That is the essence, that is the basis, the basis of Jewish power in the world today, both in the United States and in the European Union. That was a story I've, I've been talking about this lately in Culture Wars. Uh, the October issue, the December issue, talk about the origins of this narrative. If you don't understand the, the narrative, you are not going to understand how to do anything about it. That's, that's crucial. Exactly. That's, exact, that's exactly the point. And that is part of the tragedy right now is you can't talk about it. You cannot talk about this uh, because in Germany, it's illegal. And in England, it's illegal. And I don't know what the situation is, Ireland, but you probably have oh, some wow. form of hate, hate speech. It's probably mm -hmm. why you got in trouble. Uh, you we live in a world that is dominated by this Jewish influence that makes it impossible to discuss anything because these people have been at war with Logos, which is speech primarily, for 2,000 years now. And they gained the upper hand in the 20th century largely because of the outcome of World War II and largely because of stories that we don't even know about, because no one, no one will talk about them. No one has talked about them. And I'm talking about primarily the aftermath of World War II. It's supposed to, you know, it, World War II ends and everyone lives happily ever after. No, that's not the story. That is not the story, and it is certainly not the story in Germany. And uh, one of the people that we re is a seminal figure in this regard is Pope Benedict, uh, Joseph Ratzinger. Joseph Ratzinger was 20 years old in 1947. 1946 47, the winter of that year, is known as Das Hungerjahr in German history, the Hunger Year. 
And why is that? Because there was a, a Jew by the name of uh, Morgenthau who was in Franklin Delano Roosevelt's cabinet. And he came up with something called the Morgenthau Plan, which was basically to starve Germany to death, starve the Germans to death. And nobody talks about this. In Germany, it's part of the history curriculum, but you have to talk about it in a certain way. Well, now, there were headlines, Judea declares war on Germany. Right. That's 33. Um, That's 33. 33. And by 45, they had won the war. And there was an outburst, a huge outburst of Jewish revenge against the German people that no one talks about. And that that uh, launched this narrative that put us in the position where we, we are today. It was in addition to uh, the, the Morgenthau plan, which just tried to starve the German people to death. There were all sorts of atrocities committed against Germans during the ethnic cleansing of all those ethnic Germans, largely perpetrated by Jews, who at that point were calling themselves communists because they were part of the Soviet army. But the Soviet Union was a creation of Jewish Bolsheviks. Uh, and so it's not surprising. Ilya Ehrenfeld, uh, the propagandist, uh, urged the Soviet soldiers to murder and rape German women. Nobody talks about this. That was a huge, uh, a huge catastrophe for the German people. And uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, is 20 years old in 1947. He could not not know about this. He had to know about this. He was there when it was happening. Do you know whether you're hungry if you're 20 years old? You know whether you're hungry when you're two months old. And, and the P German people have no food. Their, the food is deliberately being withheld from them. And they know who's doing it. And yet something happened after that. Uh, there was a change in plan. And the, the Germans were subjected to a ruthless form of social engineering as the tryout for the ruthless form of social engineering that was perpetrated on the American people and now on the Irish people. And the Irish people, sad to say, uh, succumbed. In a, in a oh, tragic they, way. they couldn't get enough of it. They couldn't get enough because we're actually not unlike the Jewish people in a way that we've allowed these things to happen to us. I mean, it, it's our own people doing it to us in the same way it was wherever there were Jewish persecutions. It was the Jews doing it to the Jews. Right. So, but, you know, I mean, yes, like I always say, e. Michael, that the, the things that we are not allowed to talk about, such as the German Holocaust, we're allowed to talk about the Irish Holocaust, but only if we sort of describe it in terms of, well, the, the potato crop failed. That's all that happened. It wasn't genocide against Catholics, Irish Catholics and penal laws, etc. And that if you took the soup of, you know, the, the Protestant, then you would be saved. That's not how history has been recorded. But we are certainly not allowed to challenge what happened in Germany during the no. um, and during the I, I would war. Now, there's so many things that we need to question about that. I don't know how much it helps us today, really, but we do need to. And, you know, things that you can say about the concentration camps, if you question the number of Jews that were actually killed in concentration camps, Jews who willingly got onto the trains and walked to their deaths, along with many other German people, but these things, if we question them at all, it's, well, people are jailed all over the world for saying these things. Not in America. 
Okay. I will not go to jail for anything I say. Okay. And that's good. Uh, that's good. And, and uh, it's a shame. The shame of the Americans is that they don't make use of this freedom that they have. They, they conform themselves to the narrative in a completely craven and cowardly way. And they're, they betray, uh, let's say, fellow Catholics throughout the rest of the world, or certainly fellow Catholics in Europe, fellow Catholics in Germany, who uh, are, are, are running the danger of going to jail if, if, they talk about, if they talk about this kind of thing. So the, 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 Mor the Morgenthau plan was basically abandoned because the adults in the room, though, who were still the WASP ruling class at that point, realized if we keep this up, Germany will welcome the Soviet Union with open arms. And that may have been the plan because the guy who's Morgenthau's assistant was Harry Dexter White, who was a Jew and a communist, who was working with the communists. He was a spy. So it might have been the plan. Anyway, the Marshall Plan succeeded it, but that didn't stop the social engineering that we're talking about. It just continued in a different way and a way much more relevant to our current history because it involved the sexual, the subversion of sexual morals of the German people. Uh, beginning uh, right after the war, pornography started to flow into Germany. And the main vehicle was the illustrated magazines, which started, they had obscenity laws, but they, they used to have articles on the Kinsey Report. And that was science, so you could break it and show bare breasts in your magazine. And this was the thin end of the wedge, and it led all the way up to pornography, which was flooding through the country when I was there as a teacher in the mid-70s. That was the, the, the turning point. That has direct relevance to Ireland, has direct relevance to the United States, because it was tried out first in Germany and then in the United States. The yeah. people, they were collaborating with the Swedes, Ingmar Bergman, Olaf Palma, and a Jew by the name of Harry Schein, were collaborating hand in glove with the Jews in Hollywood to first test it out in Sweden, the socialist country, then test it out in Germany, then test it out in the United States. It happened within uh, a couple of years. And the, the way they did it in the United States, the Jews who controlled Hollywood tried to do a uh, a sex farce with Dean Martin called Kiss Me Stupid. That failed. And the next year they came up with Holocaust, a Holocaust movie. And that did the trick. It was called The Pawn Broker. So you see how this subversion, how the Holocaust becomes the vehicle for the subversion of morals to break down the resistance of uh, Catholic forces like the Legion of Decency in the United States. That led to the... Go ahead. Yeah, no, continue, continue. That led... That led to sexual liberation. That led to the referendum on gay marriage. Uh, that led to the referendum on abortion, which is a Jewish operation from the beginning, not just in Ireland, but also in Australia. And now you have, you see the lockdown, how bad the lockdown is in Australia because they failed to stand up uh, to these, to, to, the, to the abortion issue and the gay marriage issue. Once, once the, the, the dam broke when they did that, once that happened, they were easy. It was easy to take control. And now, irony of ironies, Australia has just created concentration camps for the unvaccinated. The army is picking up unvaccinated people and taking them to camps. Who would have ever thought that it would come full circle like this? But that's what's happened. But it was all we were. It was all prophesied. There's no denying that. And you know, I mean, you have been warning about this 
for years. But I, I do want us to go back to um, the advent of our of, of our Lord. Right. And right. Get right. let's get get started there. And you know right. how society developed under Christianity and why that society was so stable. It was so harmonious. People had private property rights for the first time. Wars were tried, they kept at a minimum because people all agreed in the same, they believed in the same savior and that's where they got their common identity from. But of course, then we know who came in and destroyed all that. So bring us back to the temple, bring us back to how Jesus tried to stand up against money lending and interest and usury, which is at the, the heart of everything that's gone wrong because Irish people are completely controlled by the banks now. That's right. That's right. And they 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 should have stiffed the banks the way Iceland did, but they didn't. And that's part of the tragedy of Ireland right now. But anyway, it goes back to the moment where uh, the Jews killed Jesus Christ. They killed their Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Logos incarnate. You are, you are trying to destroy Logos. You are in rebellion against Logos, which is the order of the universe. This is not going to go well. And it didn't go well because... The first, they they imbibed the revolutionary spirit at that point, and they acted on it. 70 AD, they rebelled against Rome, and Rome came in and crushed them and destroyed the temple. That's the end of Judaism. The end. You cannot fulfill the Mosaic covenant without a temple, a priesthood, and a sacrifice, and they can't do it anymore. And so at this point, Yochanan ben Zakkai, the rabbi, goes to Titus. He says, I'm a friend of Rome. Let me start a school. And this is the beginning of Judaism, uh, which is younger than Christianity. It's a new religion. That's the religion that created after the temple. They still didn't learn their lessons. 60 years later, Simon Bar Kokhba rises up and again rebels against Rome. And this time, Jerusalem is wiped off the face of the earth. Nobody even knows. It's called Alia Capitolina, a bishop in the 5th century, did, had never heard of Jerusalem. It had been wiped off the face of the earth. The, the, the crucial turning point from the inside, that's the Jewish side, the crucial turning point from the inside of Christianity, from the, from the inside of Logos, is the point where St. Paul can no longer preach at synagogues. Can't do it. The Jews won't let you preach. And so he's he's in Ephesus, you know, with the Blessed Mother and St. John. And he has a dream. And the dream is there's a man from the other side of the Aegean kind of beckoning him to come across. And so he does. Goes to Greece. Unlike St. Peter, St. Paul could speak Greek. St. Peter could not do this. He had to have translators. You can't preach through translators. He goes to Greek. He goes to the, not only to Greece, he goes to Athens, he goes to the Areopagus. It's mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. And he gives a, a, a little speech uh, to the Areopagus, which is basically the philosophical society in Athens, the students as Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. And he gives the wrong speech. Uh, maybe if I ever get to see him, if I ever get to heaven, he'll, he'll yell at me for saying this. But uh, I think he gave the Ephesus speech. The Ephesus was dominated by silversmiths who made little idols of Diana, uh, 13 breasts, ugly little idols. And that was the basis for the economy in Ephesus. And when when Paul threatened that, they, they, they expelled him. You're talking about a different group of people here. Uh, he tried to talk to them about Jesus. 
who is this guy? This Paul's a man in a hurry. You better slow down here to talk to these people. But he says, this man, I, I, he rose from the dead. And at that point, they don't even know who this man is. And they say, okay, oh, he rose from the dead. Well, we'll talk about this some other time. And they walked out. And Christianity took another 600 years before it got established in Athens because of that walkout. And I'm, I'm convinced that one of the people who understood this story was St. John. And St. John realized uh, we're in a di different era now. These people, nobody, uh, we can't preach to the Hebrews anymore. We're going to preach to a whole new world. The lingua franca of this new world is Greek. Greek. We're going to talk in Greek. I'm writing the gospel in Greek, and I'm going to deal with it, the basic Greek concept, which is logos. And so he says, in the beginning, there was logos. We usually say, in the beginning, there was the word. That's why all English translate. I don't know what that means, but I do know what logos means because I studied Greek, and it means a lot more than just word. It means rationality. It means order. It means everything. It's the essence, the epitome of Greek philosophy. So this is a parallel to Genesis, which is also a narrative about the beginning. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Now St. John is saying, in the beginning, there was Logos. There was always order. There's never been a time where there has been order here. There's never been a time where there was chaos, which is what the Greeks thought, because now we know that the world was created, which the Greeks did not know. And if it's created, it's a work of art. And God is the artist, and there are going to be traces of God's mind in all of creation. This is a fundamental change. Even the Greeks, as smart as they were, could never have come up with this idea because they didn't have the idea of creation. And, is, and so he says, and Logos was with God, and Logos is God. Well, that's really, it, it's going to take centuries just to meditate on that and find the implications, discover the implications of that. And that meditation is otherwise known as the West. That's what we call the West, because now the Roman Empire collapses and the, the center of civilization starts shifting toward what we call Europe now. Although there's lots of problems. We have all of my barbarian uh, German ancestors looting and pillaging. Uh, that's going to be a problem for centuries, but eventually it's going to take hold. And so by the middle of the 13th century, we've established uh, cities. And in Paris, there's a university, and the Dominicans are running the university, and one of the, the, the star Dominicans is St. Thomas Aquinas, who finally brings Aristotle together with uh, the tradition of the West in a way that the Muslims could not do. They failed. Uh, when Aquinas was writing, he had the book of, of, of Averroes on his table. The it had been translated into Latin. Averroes was the Islamic philosopher, and philosophy in the Islamic world is a tragic, it's a tragic adventure. And Averroes was part of that tragedy, who's a man who's confronted with the contradiction between the Quran, which says the world is created, because they got it from Genesis, and Aristotle, who said the world's eternal. And so Averroes, because he didn't have the benefit of Christianity because the, the Islam is basically uh, based on uh, Nestorianism, a, a heresy, uh, because they couldn't understand how God could, Jesus Christ could be true God and true man. So he was a man. So there was that 
discontinuity, be, discontinuity between God and, and, and the universe. Uh, he just said, well, they're both right. And Aquinas was smart enough to say, no, that's the end of thinking. If you say they're both right, because you're just contradicting yourself and you can't base your, your civilization on a contradiction. And so in, in a moment of brilliance that is typical of him, he said, even if the world were eternal, it had to come into being. Now, that is really sophisticated thinking because most people confuse time and causality, and they're two different things. And Aquinas was able to separate them. And so Father Yaki said, at that moment, 1277 was the creation of science. This is the beginning of science because uh, the Bishop of Paris condemned Averroism, that notion of two truths. It would make a comeback there. I mean, uh, it's never going to die out. There's always going to be that tendency. But it had officially been condemned. And now uh, what we saw was uh, the universe is worth just looking at all on its own. It's an incredible change. Because before this, Plato said the only intelligible things were forms and they existed someplace that no one's ever been and no one's ever. It's like up there, there are numbers and triangles and we've never been there. We've never seen it, but that's the only thing where you can have knowledge down here. Everything changes. It's complete chaos. So don't even think about, uh, think about studying. This is all changed now. And it had implications for science, which I've, which I've talked about. Albert the great now would just study things as they are, but it all had also had implications for art. And Aquinas is a contemporary of Giotto. And now Giotto, the great Italian artist, breaks with the idea, the Greek model. Vasari talked about this. The icon. The background of the icon is gold because gold is eternity. Now we have Jesus Christ in the world. And you look at the background and there are people working in the background. There are cities in the background. Uh, you have Christ asleep in the boat and you look at the faces and you, you've got these people who are upset. It's obviously they're upset. You've got all this drama now because the world is an intelligible place because Logos is God and God created the world. And that's the West. That's the West. So I just finished a book on art, which covers all the way from Giotto up to the, the Jewish takeover of art in the 20th century and the destruction of art as a result. Uh, Logos rising is just the same trajectory, but now it's philosophy and science. And I mean, if people find what we're talking about maybe a bit too highbrow, you know, art is a very good way of explaining how Christianity inspired the most beautiful buildings, for example, in Europe, in the world, really. And, you know, particularly in Europe, all of the great cathedrals, but the classical design which has been replaced by Soviet blocks funded by we know who, uh, which, you know, does not. And I know you talk about this so beautifully that when people don't have beauty around them, it really impacts on them. Talk right. a little bit about that. Yeah, I th Aquinas said that uh, ma man needs beauty. You need beauty in your life. Okay, beauty is a transcendental. That means there are three aspects of being, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And you can access being, which is God, through either, either all three of these channels or either of them separately. And 
most people access God through beauty. It's just that simple. It, because it appeals to the senses. And most people just don't have the capacity for abstract thought of the sort that you need to do metaphysics where you can prove the existence of God. People uh, understand it through beauty. If you deprive people of beauty, you're depriving people of God. It's that simple. Uh, that's why you need a beautiful church or beautiful music. And I, I could talk about experiences my own life. In the depths of my apostasy, I listened to Handel's Messiah. And it drove me out of my house to the church. I couldn't go in. I didn't go in. It took a, another year or so before that happened. But I was driven. I was moved. I, I was moved by beauty. Now, if it's you so if you live if you live, I'm trying to explicate Aquinas here. If you live in a a really ugly society, you still have that craving for beauty. And I'm Aquinas is saying you will seek it in the sensual realm. And one of the if you're a man, one of the sources of beauty is the female body. And so you're naturally going to be driven in that direction, especially the uglier your your uh, your, your culture is. And that will, uh, given the concupiscent nature of man, fallen man, you will end up with pornography. And pornography in many ways is an expression of this desire for beauty that has been perverted and, expo and exploited. And we all know the Jews are in charge of pornography too which is a way of basically directing that natural desire for the transcendent into something that is uh, the opposite of transcendent. Well, exactly. And, you know, speaking of the Dominicans, you know, Ireland is, it was, a, it was an open air monastery, probably more so than any other country in Europe. I mean, I always say to people, just think of the number of towns and little villages in Ireland that begin with the word kill. There's probably thousands, which means church. It means church. So we had all these incredible orders here, uh, religious orders, Dominicans, Carmelites, you name it. And many of whom sadly have been embroiled in scandals since because they were infiltrated by Marxists. But that today is the only place where we find the beauty. There's a, a beautiful Dominican friary in the middle of the north inner city of Dublin, Michael, and it is like a cathedral. We actually don't in Dublin have a, a Catholic cathedral. Can you believe it? We have two Protestant ones, <laughs> which were stolen from us. But anyway, we won't go into that. But um, so, but this place it is so magnificent, and you look up. And you're looking up to the heavens, but you're also admiring the incredible architecture that our great grandparents and grandparents, um, they built basically because they wanted us to have the Christian legacy in Ireland. But surrounding that magnificent priory is just slums, brothels, mass uncontrolled immigration, nobody Irish around, right. um, third world. A town yeah. that was so yeah. elegant and beautiful and you know, regal in the right sense, brought to its knees, but there's remnants left of the beauty and you just feel how much longer can this last? It, it is it destined to be destroyed as well. So, but I do want to get back to the whole idea of the monastic lifestyle because I right. really do feel that that was the last time Ireland experienced the, a glorious existence 
the, the Irish were the missionaries that converted my German ancestors. And they, they, it was the, the, the Benedictines ultimately. They, they began in Fulda. There was an Irish uh, monastery there and they sailed down the, uh, up, up the Danube from there and created monasteries all along that place and brought about the Christianization of the German people. We have the Irish to thank for that. I'm Irish and German, so I can uh, appreciate both sides of this equation. But what, uh, so the motto of the um, Benedictus is ora et labora, which means to work and pray. And one of the achievements of the Benedictines is teaching the Germans how to work. They have the uh, probably the most powerful and sophisticated workforce in the world, in spite of being intellectually crippled by social engineering, in spite of that, they still have that, that aspect to it. And I've talked to my, uh, my racialist uh, uh, friends about the difference between Africa and Germany being a thousand years of uh, Benedictine and Catholic culture, teaching the Germans how to work. It never happened. Uh, I, I had a, a I was in Tanzania. Uh, someone handed me a brochure about a, a coffee cooperative uh, collaboration between the Diocese of Mbinga and the Diocese of Würzburg. Diocese of Mbinga founded in 1987. Diocese of Würzburg founded in 730. That's the difference between Africa and Germany. That's the difference between Tanzania and Germany. It's a thousand years of learning how to work and pray. And, and, uh, that's, that is many ways, it's the legacy of Ireland because it was Ireland who brought the, who brought Christianity to the Germans. It and came down from that, from that direction. It's, it's, to this, the, this, this is, this is the legacy well. of the Irish and it continues, it continues, even when Ireland was conquered and under the heel of, of, uh, of the, the English Protestants. They they produced hero they still produced heroic missionaries. The 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 nun uh, the who's become my friend here studying theology at, at Notre Dame uh, is from Kenya. Uh, she's a member of an order that was founded by an Irish woman in the 20th century. An Irish nun came over there, and not only did she come over there, she inspired generations of African women to follow in her footsteps. This is, this is an amazing story. Mother, uh, Mother Kevin, and it's the order of the, uh, the, uh, the little sisters of St. Francis. Yes. Uh, these, these people are, these are heroic figures. I'm, 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 I'm not trying to, this is not a, a cheap exaggeration. There are women now who are uh, in God forsaken places like the Northern part of Kenya, where we're heading into desert and they're having drought. And these are women who have schools and they, they don't have food. I mean, we're talking about basic things like food because the situation is so bad and they are heroically continuing to in the footsteps of that, that Irish woman. She was so, she was such an inspiration to them. So that's part of, even in this century and this century, I mean, we're talking about tragedy, the Irish tragedy, the potato famine, all of this type of stuff. And even under all of that burden, there were still Irish women who could go and inspire Africans to this day. Well, like it's definitely the case that no group of people suffered more for their Christian faith in Europe than the Irish. No question. And that's why 
we held on to our Christian beliefs, such as the sanctity of human life in the womb, the idea that uh, a man cannot get married to another man, the idea that the family is the primary institution in the, in the, the, the nation and it's the most important when you have a strong family, you have strong nation. And out of all of that philosophy, which is our bedrock, came ideas that you would be independent. For example, financially, you would not turn to the state for help because coming out of Christianity is the idea that God helps those who help themselves. And you have to get all you can't play the victim like a certain other group of people do all the time. And nobody's ever allowed to say boo about them. But the Catholic idea is that you don't play the victim. You are not a victim. You are a, a created in the image of God. And you should aspire to being as close to like him as possible. And when you do that, your life becomes incredibly happy. Right. And we, we <laughs> held on to that until it was demolished by the mainstream media. You know, I remember as late as the 1980s that Ireland was a paradigm for uh, for Catholics throughout the world. They, they, uh, it was written into the Constitution. Uh, abortion was illegal. Uh, it, 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 and it co collapsed so quickly. It, it oh, collapsed like amazing. overnight. And, and it was shocking, the extent of that collapse. Well, it, but, I mean, but, but, it was illegal for three years. Less than that. It's only been like that's how long we held on to our cat because we knew you can't kill babies. What are you talking about? Killing a baby in the place where they should be safest? Are you crazy? We looked at the rest of Europe and said, This is barbaric. We looked at our neighbors. They're barbarian. They're using abortion, they're using contraception, abortion as contraception, and that's wrong as well. But they're just aborting. By the new time, one in two marriages breaks up over there. Same on the other side of the Atlantic. But we here, we held off. And as a result, I, I know it because I grew up in this country. I know that it was Catholicism that made it brilliant, made it safe, made it in, that you grew up with parents who loved each other. It wouldn't be perfect always, but they were not going to go off and set up home with another man or woman. That was not going to happen. No, uh, I I, tr I I was in Germany uh, the summer of 1974, and the school vacation we traveled. My wife and I and our oldest child traveled to Ireland, and I went to Balahadreen and met my great aunt and great uncle there. And I was I came from an agricultural region of Germany. It was the Lower Rhine, Catholic region, dairy farms, and I got to this part. And I thought. There's a big difference between Ireland and Germany. Ireland is poor, but they were, but they were, she was, she was, she was old. She was my great aunt. Okay. She was my great aunt. They're old. The two guys, their two children weren't even there. The one had to go to, uh, had to go to England, couldn't get a job. It was so poor. You couldn't even stay on the farm. They didn't have running water. Okay. And then suddenly it all, this, this was the moment in Germany when the pornography was sweeping through the country. I had a front row seat. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew what I was, uh, what my students were being exposed to. And Ireland was off on its own, as far as I could tell. 
they're all from their farms and it's 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 another world it's and pornography was banned like it just didn't come into the country then because we people knew it was repulsive and well when did it happen tell me oh i suppose the 90s the 90s everything just got out of control is that the same as the the irish tiger is that when usury arrived in ireland when they were Correct. lending you money when the Irish suddenly decided that they need to, needed, you know, to go on shopping weekends in New York, that they needed an apartment in Bulgaria, that they needed, you know, to have three cars and, and, and money. It was money that destroyed them. And money's destroying them really now because they can't, they're now having to get vaccined every few months in order. This is punishment. This is punishment it's, for it's your sins, divine, Ireland. Divine it's punishment. Mm-hmm. I, I had this, I was thinking about our, our conversation before I went on, and I thought, look, Ireland is not India. It's not Iran. Ireland was a Catholic country, and they deliberately turned away. The only way you're going to come back is if you return to the Catholicism that you abandoned. There's no other way here. We just have to have, it's, we have to have some type of repentance, some type of national movement for repentance. I don't know where it's going to come from, but it's got it's got to happen because do you understand that COVID is the punishment? Do you understand that the countries like like Australia and Ireland that went for these referenda are now the worst in terms of lockdowns? Do you realize I mean, getting back to the Holocaust, uh, uh, the Australians have set up concentration camps. Who would have thought that? They're taking the unvaccinated to camps now in army trucks. Who would have thought this? Well, you got into it uh, through those referenda. You ran up the you ran up the white flag, the cultural white flag. I remember. I'm talking to a bishop. This is before the gay marriage referendum, and I got people in Australia that want me to come. And I said, "Look, the only way this is going to work is the way it worked in Poland." The bishops supported me there. The Jews wanted me banned. They wanted that book tour stopped. They did and pulled out all of the power. They had every newspaper in Warsaw calling me an anti-Semite. And the Polish bishops stood by me. They did not throw me under the bus. And as a result, we defeated gay marriage in Poland. It never happened there. And I said the same thing, we could do the same thing in Australia. But I have to have some type of support here from the church. And so they put me in contact with this bishop, and I'm talking to him, and I'm trying to, you know, explain the situation. And afterwards, uh, he just, line went dead. And I talked to my friend. What happened? He, the bishop said, you're an anti-Semite. Well, wait a minute. Suppose the Polish bishops had said I'm an anti-Semite. They'd have gay marriage now. That's why you're in such a mess down there. You should have you should have stood your ground when you had a chance. It was a better chance. Now you're in the last ditch. Now they're dragging you off to concentration camps. This is not an exaggeration. I don't know why it happened. I don't know. Maybe it's because they're all Irish. If they're not Irish, they're English, and most of them are Catholic because they were sent there as for, uh, to a penal colony. Maybe they never got over their their sense of being uh, criminals because the British said so, because you stole Trevelyan's corn. 
Does that mean you're a prisoner, a criminal? No, no. Cardinal Frings put that to rest in Germany after the war. If you're starving, you have a right to take the food that you need to feed your family. That's not theft. No one would ever say that's theft. Okay. Well, maybe, I don't know. I, it's a mystery. We're always dealing with the mystery of iniquity here. But I do think it is. But look at what country in the world is probably more liberal than most Australia and New Zealand. And, you know, look at California. It's the places where they've just let all their standards go. And it's just had party, party, party. And it's all about fulfilling the material needs. And this is how this is how it ends. And that's how Solzhenitsyn described it. All that happened was we turned our backs on God. Right. And then we ended up in the gulags. That's what that, happened. That's right. It just, just seems so obvious. And it's being fulfilled now again. So, But it's, it's only, hard only... for people. That, but I, I, what, in the, the video you recently made, um, the interview you did, you, you were talking about the monastic lifestyle. I, I really want to get into this and how, and the idea of, you know, when there was this benevolence there, self-sufficiency inspired by the monks and the, the manner in which they operated the land, that there would always be somebody that anyone in need would be looked after. But the idea was that you would have your own holding. And then when the wars began and the people were dragged off. Their property was abandoned and seized. Just explain all of that, E. Michael, if you wouldn't mind. Well, the tra the real tragic case was England, and and the man who discussed that in detail was William Cobbett. Uh, centuries later, and the great the tragedy uh, it goes by the name of the Reformation. The Reformation was a looting operation. That's all it was. It was nothing but a looting operation in England. Nothing but Germany. It was a looting operation. L Germany it was a looting operation with a little bit of theology sprinkled on top by uh, a horny monk by the name of Martin Luther. But in England, it was pure looting. B basically, mm -hmm. the aristocracy. By by this point in history, we're talking about the the uh, the 16th century. The church owns enormous amounts of property because it's been bequeathed to them. Now the difference with the church was that that they put that property to common use. And so uh, Cobbett said in England before the Reformation, you could walk, all you had to do was any direction, six miles at the most, and you would come to a, an organization run by the church that would take you in for the night. And if you got sick, you could stay there and they'd nurse you to your well. Well, that was all destroyed by the so-called reformation, the looting operation, where basically they privatized church property and the aristocrats stole it. They stole it and they're never going to get back. And the great line from Tawny's book is the, the upstart, the upstart aristocracy had their teeth in the carcass and they weren't going to be whipped off by a sermon. That has been the basis of the rich, the, the, the wealthy families in England to this day, the Russell family, uh, the Cecil family, people like that. They stole church property. Capitalism, it begins with theft. That's what Marx said, and it's true. And capitalism began with the theft of church property. And at that point, all those people who were living off the land were expelled from the land so that they could enclose the land and raise sheep 
and provide wool for the Medici's and their wool operation. Uh, and those people had nothing. They became uh, criminals, uh, at least according to their laws, because they had no way of uh, providing for themselves. And you had that dislocated or uh, rural uh, proletariat uh, roaming around basically until the Industrial Revolution when they were all put to work in, in factories. That's, that's the legacy of what we lost. That's, that was this tragic interruption of Catholic history, tragic interruption of the history of the West and the creation of a system uh, that was calculated to benefit the few at the expense of the many. And the name of that system is capitalism. Capitalism is state-sponsored usury. It's always bound up with usury. And it's also the systematic appropriation of all surplus value coming from labor. That's why that's the world that, that we live in today. Then the saddest thing, Michael, from an Irish perspective is that, yes, we suffered terribly during the Reformation and our monasteries were burned to the ground and our people exterminated. But we actually did build back again as a very strong Catholic nation. Dare I even mention the words build back together. But so when we got our independence 100 years ago, there was a very strong desire by the founding fathers that our constitution would be Catholic and that it would be clearly stated in the preamble that all of our rights came from the Holy Trinity. And that made it patently clear what we stood for as a people. And then the religious orders set about founding the hospitals and the schools. And virtually every hospital and every school in Ireland that's been there for decades has the word saint in front of it. All of the big acute hospitals in Dublin have saint, but that they don't like to mention that anymore. They sort of knock that out. They're called Jameses and Vincents that matter. Well, that doesn't have saint in front of it, but they don't even like to have to say that word. And But then they came up with the largely fabricated sexual abuse scandals, mostly fabricated because many of the stories turned out to be lies. And we do know there was significant child abuse, but it was because of the infiltration of the monasteries. And in very recent years, those monasteries, convents and a lot of church property has been seized in the last 10, 20 years by the state from which they are now running you know, LGBT projects and the most horrific things that are anathema to the buildings that they are these things are being carried out in now these buildings were built for the love of god and the love of humanity that people would be treated the sick would be treated and that children be taught the catechism and now they're being taught the most sordid things in these buildings it's absolutely sickening yes you had an advantage that we never had in the united states We've never had a Catholic constitution. The Catholics have always been considered pariahs, and they're considered pariahs today for, for, for different reasons. But you're talking about um, the systematic sexualization of the culture. That's how, that's how we got to this point. Uh, and the systematic sexualization of the culture was, uh, there's an ethnic component to this. The architect of that was Wilhelm Reich, a, a, a Jew, uh, who was a communist and a Freudian from Vienna, uh, wrote a book called The Mass Psychology of Fascism in the 1930s. And in that book, he said, uh, basically gave the program 
for defeating the Catholic Church in Austria. And it was basically get the clergy involved in sexual activity. It's that simple. So they were, they were the group, this was the group that was promoting the sexualization of the culture. Then as the, as the arsonist, okay, they're setting the fire. And then uh, once the, the clergy acts on it, they suddenly become the fire department and they're going to lock everybody down now for uh, the crimes that they basically committed. This was completely one-sided. There were uh, a, Jew, uh, a Jewish district attorney in Philadelphia launched an investigation on sexual abuse. The only institution she investigated was the Catholic Church. This lady was on the board. Lynn Abrams was on the board of the ADL. These are enemies of the entire human race, but certainly enemies of the, of the Catholic Church. And so the result was uh, uh, an investigation where this lady published the pictures of 300 priests. And there was one indictment. Well, wait a minute. If you're not going to indict someone, why are you putting this picture up there? This was a, a propaganda campaign against the Catholic Church. They did the same thing in Boston, which also had a large uh, Irish Catholic population. And then they did it in Ireland. It was the same thing over and over and over again. And the people fell for it. The people fell for it to a large extent. That's the tragedy. Well, now it's time to wake up. And, and uh, if we can talk frankly about this, I think I can walk the Irish people through what happened here. But we have to be able to talk frankly and openly about who the real actors were, because if we if we allow ourselves to be censored, we're going to be a conquered people for the foreseeable future. It's that simple. Exactly. And I like the, the men who drafted our Constitution, some of them, Eamon de Valera for one they well, although I'm I'm not sure. I think he weakened, but they wanted to put in specifically into our constitution that Freemasonry would be outlawed. Now we know where Freemasonry comes from. Would you explain that? The same people, right? The yes, there's a whole chapter in uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit about the rise, the rise of Freemasonry. Okay, it was uh, there were there were Masonic groups who actually built buildings in the Middle Ages, but this whole thing got weaponized when the Whig oligarchs took over the Masonic lodges in the 1720s, and it became a, a, an operation, uh, basically the psychological warfare arm of the uh, the British the British Empire, and so they set up uh, Whig uh, Whig. Masonic lodges in Europe. Okay. Uh, they set one up in Hamburg. Hamburg has always been an Anglophile German city. Uh, and, uh, uh, they said, uh, the Hamburg group said, uh, we're not going to let Jews in. The British overruled them. The Grand Lodge and so on. They said, no, you have to admit Jews. So we're talking about uh, a subversive agent. The same thing happened in France. The Masonic Lodge became the uh, basically the arm of uh, British uh, warfare against the French, and eventually they succeeded in bringing down the the Bourbon monarchy and establishing the the rule of uh, Freemasonry and capitalism in in Europe as a result of that. So it was it, it developed out of that that type of collaboration, 
uh, and it's it still is working that way today. It, the Masonic lodges ran the United States of America. Uh, I don't think that's the case anymore. I, I the uh, Phil, Philip uh, the Duke of Orleans, who was the cousin of the king, changed his name to Philippe Egalité. Uh, he had to write a memoir before they chopped off his head, and he said that Freemasonry is to revolution like the candle to the sun. And when the sun of revolution rises, you don't need the candle anymore. And so I guess the classic, he's talking about the French revolution, but obviously the Russian revolution is another example of precisely that. That type of ferocious revolution makes Freemasonry, the subversion of Freemasonry unnecessary. And I think the same thing applies to the United States. Uh, basically, we have the revolutionaries running the show now. The, they, the Biden yeah. administration has so many Jews in the cabinet, they could have a minion. They, went, they could have a, their own prayer service because they have uh, more than 10 Jews in the cabinet. This is the hidden grammar of uh, the United States politics, and we have to talk about it. Because if we don't talk about it, then they are going to win. It's that simple. I think the significance of the Freemason that the, 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 the Freemasonry is that at a local level, it's very influential because it targets the different professions such as the law, the police, the, and infiltrates them and gets these guys signed in before they know it. They're being blackmailed. They're, you know, being, um, you know, the, there's hookers put on their way. There's lines of cocaine and then they've got them. So Ireland has, I believe, the highest number of Freemason lodges in the world per capita even though it's all underground, a lot of it. But that's how they get them at a, a local organic grassroots level. And then it goes right up. It goes up to the yeah. judiciary, obviously, to I, I, government. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize the pernicious influence of Freemasonry. It had a horrendous effect in South America. Mexico, uh, to this day, is basically uh, run by uh, Freemasons. Uh, to the detriment of the Mexican people who are overwhelmingly Catholic. So I, I'm not trying to de uh, denigrate. I'm just saying that we're at a much more advanced stage. It may be in certain localities. That's the case. My my uh, my father-in-law was a Freemason. Uh, I don't. He was not a revolutionary by any stretch of the imagination. And and the, at, at a certain point, I think he had trouble finding successors because in Philadelphia, people weren't joining the Masonic Lodge anymore. Uh, it, mm. it just, just, it's just what happened there, you know? But I suppose when you tie that in with the bankers and the people who are really controlling everyone, the Zionists, it's, you know, it, it's on a local level that there are these levels of, control right. and right. then see one of the things i don't understand is how can uh, ireland be so anti-zionist and so supportive of the palestinian people and not understand that there is uh, another element to jewish subversion that is always marxist and and in many ways the opposite of zionism is the zionist marxist quarrels and intra-jewish quarrel how come the irish only see one side of the story how come they only see the zionist side I met with, when I was in Tehran, I met with Mick and Claire, I forget, two Irish politicians. I think they're, they're from Dublin. Yeah, but they, I mean, they'd be hardcore leftists now. They'd be, mar they'd be, you know, very lefty. Yes. 
So they don't understand that there is a, 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 a subversive element. Uh, they don't understand that the Jews control the left as well as much as Zionism or that it doesn't bother them. I don't understand this. I, 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 it's a mystery to me. They do, no, they're, they're not sophisticated enough, I'm afraid, in their thinking, but also they're cowards. They're cowards because they don't want to be called, you know, anti-Semites. And, but they have to push Islam. Islam. It's not even about, they don't care about Palestinians, I don't think. They have to be seen to be pushing Islam because that's going to be the new religion. And we know that that is also funded by the Zionists. So, uh, and they have to be, you know, completely... Uh, like pushing the globalist agenda, but also to be seen to be defending international causes. And why don't they help. see this influence uh, domestically? And are, are they all on board with this? I guess they are, because sexual liberation became part of the left. That's the the tragedy of the left over the course of the 20th century, when everybody stopped talking about economics on the left, and everybody started talking about sex, and that's all they talked about. But and that's what like, the left is now. That's it. That's what it is. They're porn, but they're pedophiles. They're depraved. I'm not talking specifically about Michael uh, Mick Wallace and Claire Daly, but it's anything but Catholicism because Catholicism was so bad and it was so repressed. It's much better to teach four year olds about masturbation. This is really going to develop their intellect, teaching them, yeah. you know, to have sex with themselves. This is really highbrow. Yeah. Civilization, Michael. Did you not know that? Uh, I must have missed that. Uh, yeah, that no, was, I, I didn't I get mean, that memo. Is, it's all, like, it's I didn't get that memo. There's another tragic figure, Terry Eagleton, the Marxist professor at, uh, at uh, Oxford, uh, wrote a biography, autobiography about what it was like to be an older boy in Ireland. And then, so how does you go from being an older boy to this flaming Marxist professor? Well, the short answer to that question is sex. It's that simple. It's in his autobiography. This is what wrecked this class of people. This is what wrecked this class. Uh, it wrecked the Irish. It wrecked America. It wrecked the church in America. And it's time we woke up and understood Wilhelm Reich. We got to wake up. He was on the cover of the New York Times magazine in 1970. This is what happened. This is why the sex, sexual revolution is so important, because it led from a coherent Irish Catholic culture into this COVID colony, Google, run by Google and Facebook, uh, which John Waters has talked about eloquently. Oh, yeah. You know, I was talking to a young man the other day. And he was telling me that he's trying to get a mortgage. But because his wife stays at home with their four children, the bank will not give him a mortgage. Oh, this is outrageous. Isn't this sickening? This but, is you outrageous. Know, but I explained it to him. But this is about the destruction of your family. They want your wife out at work so that they can come in and maybe take your children from you if you're going to be awkward squad or stand up against them. And I tried to explain to him that women were put into the workforce in order to reduce men's wages, more right. slaves for the banks, for the capitalists, communists, they're all the one. And then the state could move in on the children and take over their education and brainwash them into good little socialists, good little communists. But this is how sickening it is well, that the banks that was, are working to demolish the family. 
You mean, and, and did he understand what you were saying? I think he got it. I think he got it. Yeah. You know, when you say like white Irish men, I can't believe I have to say white Irish men because you cannot be anything other than white if you're Irish. But um, and I, like that's just a fact. But they have been so attacked as American white, white, straight American men have been and, you know, all men in the West. But they are so down. They're so browbeaten. They're so just totally disillusioned and they're not allowed to speak. They're not allowed to be men. And when you say to them, look, women like me believe that the most important role of a woman is to be a mother. It's if you are a mother and you've been blessed with children, the greatest job and career you can do is to be with your children until they are fully grown. And when you tell say that to Irish men, they think, really? You actually think that? Yes. And that's what most women know instinctively, that they should be at home with their children. The, the great achievement after World War II in America was the widespread implementation of the family wage. The family wage. By that, we mean a man earns enough money to support his wife who can stay at home and raise the children. If you don't have a family wage, you will end up like Florence uh, in the the 15th century, which became a museum because the, the working class could not reproduce. There was no generation. They could not afford to have children. The wages were too low. This is precisely what happened to America, okay? When they abolished the family wage, when they started loading down these companies with debt and outsourcing through leveraged buyouts, they destroyed the manufacturing base of America. And now China is the leading manufacturing country. Now, again, it's the same group of people. This was Wall Street that did it. There's a certain group that dominates Wall Street, they had names like Boski and, and uh, Michael Milliken during the 1980s, and they are responsible for this catastrophe. They are also responsible for promoting feminism. Feminism is nothing more than the destruction of the family wage. They come up with phrases like equal pay for equal work. Who can argue with that? Well, yeah, the argument is the family wage, because if the woman can't raise Uh, can't stay home and raise her children, then people are not going to have children. Because if both people are working, you can't. You don't have time to have children. And maybe you'll have one or two and put them in a daycare center and the state will raise them. And that will be the end of your culture. Well, and also it'll be the end of your happiness. Because if the state raises them, they're going to turn into complete disasters. They're going to think that, you know, well, they'll have gender confusion. They'll want to have abort, abort, abort. They won't be able to have a stable married life. So you, your children will be children forever if the state is raising them in state schools. Whereas if you are at home raising them, teaching them the culture, the culture of your parents and your grandparents, well, then you will have happy little children who will grow up into happy adults and might actually even look after you in your old age, which would be something rather than being dumped into a nursing home, which will happen if you keep your children in state schools. That's right. So there's huge benefits to all of this, Michael. Huge, enormous benefits. Yeah. But people will learn the hard way. 
Experience keeps an expensive school, but fools will learn in no other. And so Ireland has now been through the expensive school, the expensive school of of experience. And now we're not going to talk about the theoretical realm. We're talking about actual empirical facts that you are slaves now. You have been enslaved and you gave up your heritage, your Catholic heritage. And now what do you have? Debt? Uh, transgenderism, uh, a homosexual tisic. Actually, I hear he's being investigated for some type of some type of fraud or other. Maybe I'm. He's Indian or, as well. Don't forget uh, that. Bit. Yes. Anyway, so it's it's not as if we have to make and say if you do this, this will happen in the future. The future has already happened. All you have to do is look around, and that's that's true as true of Germany. It's true of the entire West, which is what we were talking about at the beginning. Well, look, Michael, you've helped us to understand what's gone wrong with our civilization and how to fix it. So the answers are there. It's not difficult. But, you know, I do think the Irish are going to learn the hard way, as they always have done. But thank you so much for your time. Is there anything now you have a new book coming out? Have you? Yes, it's called Dangers of Beauty. Uh, the conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts. And it's a whole history of the West from the point of view of beauty rather than the true or the good. So that'll be out. Culture Wars magazine is dealing with these crucial issues in Germany right now. The the consciousness is rising in Germany. They can't keep it down anymore. Uh, and we're talking about that. Uh, so you can go to culturewars.com. Uh, or fidelitypress.org and all of my materials available there. Fantastic. When is your book out? We're talking, uh, finishing up. We're ready to send it to the printer. So it should be early, early to 2020, 2022, 2022. 2022. Yes. I know. It just still feels like March, 2020 when the math <laughs> really got going. Listen, to be continued, definitely. Please come back on again soon. Thank you. My pleasure, Thank you so much, E. Michael Jones. Take care. God bless. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining me, and I'll be back again soon.